This podcast is a production of TSA Arts Watch. So the 2020 through 2021 academic year is essentially wrapping up. And the bittersweet emotions that come from liminal periods like this are ubiquitous in our TSA community. I'd argue that's especially the case considering the current events of the past year. For nearly 22 years, our school has stood as a proud beacon of the arts in our city and continued to stand through a pandemic. As a graduating senior myself, reflecting on my experiences here has illuminated a deep curiosity as to what or who came before. How this place I have considered a second home for the past seven years actually came to be. With every graduating class comes an influx of new arrivals, people with their own significant experiences and new things to bring to the table. As such, the culture of TSA is ever-changing, and yet has always remained distinctly the same since the very beginning. What exactly is the culture here at TSA? How is it sustained in a way that still allows for innovation and diversity? This episode, as we all ready ourselves for a new change and a new chapter of life, we had the chance to reminisce with a few TSA OGs, and we couldn't be more thankful. This is TSA's oral history, months of work, and the first official documentation of our humble beginnings. My name is Lucas. My name is Aubrey. And we'd like to welcome you to this year's final episode of the TSA Beat. I'm Elizabeth Emmert. Um, I am a founding board member of Toledo School for the Arts, and currently I am a development consultant for the school. I like to say I've been with the school since before the beginning, because we opened in September of 99, but the very first meeting about doing a charter school focused on the arts was in May of 98. They gathered together a great mix of people, um, educators, arts leaders, artists, and community leaders. We met one early one morning at the Toledo Club, and the question was, could Toledo support something like this? So it was a great mix of visionaries and people who knew how to run schools. Come April, March or April, we decided, okay, we better we better get serious about this and hire an official director. My name is Martin Porter. I, I am the uh, first director of Toledo School for the Arts. I was hired in June of 99. At that time, I was serving as the director of the Council for the Arts down in Lima. And a friend of mine, uh, an old musician buddy, br brought me the, the news clipping uh, in the one ads of that they were opening this school and were looking for a director. And I was finally offered the job and hired in June. And so we had 88 days to work. We had no office space. We had, we had no building, no faculty, no chairs, no students, nothing. My first hires, um, one was David Sagers. I had worked as a musician with David for years. He had worked at the Art Museum. I really trusted David and we knew each other so well that I felt like I was gonna to have to have an artistic director to help put all the team and courses and stuff together. And then my first teacher was Lee Reamer, who I knew through my wife. She, they had both uh, been teachers at Lakota schools. And Lee was an out of the box thinker and she could teach math concepts in 20 different ways. So I knew that we needed somebody who had those skills because the, the student body was gonna be pretty diverse. I'm David Sagers. I'm the artistic director of the school and have been since we founded. We were trying to find artists who could teach because it's been a guiding principle that when we bring arts teachers into the building that they're practitioners as well as educators. And, you know, over the years, sometimes they've been more practitioner than educator. And trying to find all these people in that first couple of years was really pretty difficult. The school didn't have any kind of reputation. And it was kind of a 
leap of faith for anybody to come and work for us. We did um, decide to have the school start out in the Secor building. Uh, we rented space there. The Secor was an you know old hotel, so the classrooms were a little small because they were you know the size of hotel rooms. We started with about 127 students in grades seven through nine, three grades, and then each year only add the next grade. So the first ninth grade became the first 10th grade, became the first 11th grade, became the first seniors. We initially wanted the school to be a place where students who were interested in the arts could come for regular school because a lot of the public districts at the time uh, when they needed to cut the budget, of course, one of the first things to cut were the arts departments. And for some kids, that's kind of one major reason they go to school. There was a lot of interest to consider alternative education, and, and charter schools were the poster child of alternative education. And it wasn't just the like Toledo public inner city system, it was you know, also for kids who were going to suburban schools whose parents recognized that, you know, they were going to a school where there were no children in a car. Their kids were having an experience that excluded that possibility. They wanted that experience for their kids that was a more real world experience. I'm Mike Calabrese. I was one of the founding board members uh, involved from 1998. We at first thought we were going to have to form our own school district and we did not want to do that. So we were lucky enough to get sponsorship from Toledo Public Schools. Uh, Toledo Public Schools was a tenant of theirs on the second floor and we came in and renovated the third floor and turned that into Toledo School for the Arts. I am Diana Anderson. This is my 23rd year teaching at TSA. I teach beginning, intermediate, and advanced string orchestras, chamber music, and beginning and intermediate guitar, as well as run the mariachi ensemble. For me, the, the way that I got into TSA, um, Marty Porter and I played a summer festival together for over a decade. And when he had this idea for the school, you know, we were at this gig, for the summer and he said hey i'm gonna start this school you know i was like okay whatever and then when we got back closer to the fall he was like no we're really doing it for me as a full-time symphony musician it was definitely just a side gig um at the beginning we taught two days a week or three days a week and funny story about that is that free parking which is between 11 and 1 so we are we were all scheduled between 11 and 1 so that we could just come in with the free parking do our thing and leave I'm Dave Gerke. I'm development director for the last 17, 18 years at TSA. And I started off as a music teacher, but um, really just a drummer. So when I got to TSA, I was part-time. I was resistant. I was resistant. I was there in the first year. Uh, Marty Porter walked me through an empty building. Um, he said, well, this is, you know, this is one of the rooms we're building. And there were construction guys in there doing all, the, all their work and, and, and putting up walls and whatnot. I kind of reluctantly agreed in the first year. I owned a music store at the time and had, had taught at another public school for a while. And I really loved it because it paid well. Um, really cool environment. Every time I asked for something, I got it. There were, there were no issues with budget or anything like that. But I would walk off the field at the end of a rehearsal, and I would say to myself, shoo, man, you, you can't teach soul. You just can't teach soul. And these kids could read music really, really well, but they didn't have a lot of ensemble experiences about how to play and how to, it, they were, they were just kind of void of, of, of feeling, in my opinion, about stuff. And I, and I really struggled with that for many years, like how to teach soul. And I really didn't like it, so I just went back to my uh, regular drum shop gig, and I still played on weekends in Detroit and Toledo. And um, the summer before the school opened, you know, I was like in my late 30s and uh, kind of starting this new semi-settled down life. Marty Porter approached me at my drum shop. The charter school movement was very volatile, and to some extent probably still is, but not, not to the degree it was. The group of people we had kind of liked that. We were so loose uh, uh, 
in lots of ways that other schools wouldn't take a chance. And I remember teachers coming saying, are you sure we can do this? I'm, I'm worried about liability. And I just would always tell them that's why we have insurance. I mean, it was like a revolving door trying to get people in the building. Plus, you know, we were bringing teachers in to work in these spaces that were left over from whoever the last tenant had been. Like there was this room on the first floor where Registry Bistro is right now that had like a chain link fence enclosing this small area that had been used as like a daycare center and that's how they were keeping the kids from running loose. And Lorenor had to teach English in that classroom to like seventh graders. It was only a classroom because it had a chain, chain link fence around it. <laughs> It was pretty, it was the Wild West. We were, uh, we would call them work days and we would ask everybody to come. And with, I think without exception in the early years, every faculty member, every board member showed up. We, we would joke about the fact that in the early years we would, we would recruit board members because they had a trade. And I still remember in Mr. Gerke's drum studio, we had rigged up a window in that studio that you could remove and it was big enough to get sheets of drywall through from the, from the, sit, the street. And so what we did was we would make sure the drywall deliveries happened on Saturday because there was nobody uh, working at the building codes place. And so we would yank the window out. It would lift the, uh, the drywall up. We'd drag it off in the studio and then we'd hang it on the new rooms that we had laid out. But I remember the fire inspector used to come through and, and we went up to the second floor, which we had completely turned into classrooms and had been a pretty open space. And he said, this all looks real different to me. And I told him that we had painted. It looks so much better, don't you think? <laughs> we were doing a lot of stuff that wasn't strictly coded. <laughs> It was mostly entertaining. It was mostly amusing that we were having these problems. Sometimes it was frustrating. And sometimes it was just physically demanding. So many people were wearing so many hats. And you had volunteers that were doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, I used to come down there when we first started the school. I mean, you know, like the night before school opened, we're in there, we're still putting desks together. We're, we're putting tape, we're putting counters up. That's all we did. When school was out, we were cleaning the carpets and, and hanging drywall and, and dreaming, dreaming out loud, you know, dreaming out loud about what it could be. Koenig, Calabrese, Urbanski, all those guys with stars on the sidewalk, the Walk of Fame, absolutely. It's very personal to all of us still. With so much having transpired already since the first inception of the idea for the school, the time had now come to open the doors to the community at large. The pillars were in place, but things were still far from certain. I had students in for the first day of classes, and we'd managed to get three full classes, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, up to the um, size that we thought we could manage. And they were filled up pretty well, and we brought all the kids in, and we spent the first day having them fill out, you know, like questionnaires about what classes they were interested in taking. And, you know, given what we thought we could offer. And then Marty and Joan Williams and I stayed up all night long making the class rosters for the students the next day that they came back to school. And I, we worked around four or so in the morning and I went home and took a shower. And my wife says, do you really think this is a good idea, working at this place? And I'm like, I don't know, not right now. The night before, we had built schedules for all the students. Mrs. Williams, Mr. Sagers, and I were there until I think it was around 4.30 in the morning. And I drove home, put my suit on, came back uh, to welcome students. And before we opened the doors, I was breaking up a fight in the middle of uh, uh, of the, of the street out in front at the bus stop. So, <laughs> so we knew early on that some of our aspirations were gonna take time. That the student population that we had, some of them were absolutely um, focused and excited about an arts education. Others were there uh, 
kind of as refugees from bad situations uh, wherever they were. So it was pretty wild and woolly, um, but the group that we brought together were incredibly tough. They wanted to be a part of building something. And from that point forward, it was um, really the determination of the team. I, you know, honestly, I, it shocked me at the time and it still does. There was no facility when we were selling that that first summer before we were gonna open. And, you know, given that none of us had been hired before like June, it, it, it was shocking that anybody would send their kids to this place. There weren't classrooms to show anybody. I mean, it was just like a floor plan. This is what it's gonna look like. And it didn't look like that for at least the first quarter of the school year. You know, we had this music room that was just full with amps and guitars and stuff, stuff that had been donated. You know, seven or eight kids just sitting around, fooling around on this stuff. And, you know, that, that's a really awesome way to learn. I mean, especially, you know, in some art forms, just having this unlimited amount of time to experiment. And it was a really dynamic way to learn, but it was like a really disorganized way to do it too. What kid would not love that environment? But it was surprising that their parents were willing to put up with it. But I mean, it was, it was fun and it was happening in real time. You know, it was like, Everybody had a sense of, well, we're building something from scratch. I walked in on the first day and I was in charge of doing like an icebreaker with all the seventh graders, I think it was. 25, 35 kids walked in. I think we had 125 kids when we started. And this group of kids came in and I saw these little teeny tiny ballerinas in the same room with these great big uh, kids that clearly had, had, had missed a couple of grades or been held back. And like there was this extremely wide range of, of, of students in this space. I remember thinking, man, this is never gonna work. This, 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 this thing is just not gonna work. So I, looking at it to me from a parental perspective, I remember that first day when parents were dropping their kids off and their thought, I just thought there is no way I would have stopped the car long enough for my kids to get out of the car. No way. It was pretty chaotic. And I remember one of the first things that we did with this first like scrappy group of people, like this big room, Gerky ran a drum circle thing. And I was like, oh Lord, is this what it's gonna be? A couple days in, I remember bringing a bunch of hand drums in and we just created this drum circle. And there was so much soul emitting from that room and from those players that I thought, man, maybe this could work. I think this could work. I'm Deb Calabrese, or Miss Breeze, as they called me. I was there uh, from the beginning, 1999, through 2006 or seven. yeah. Oops, did I mention I was the dance teacher? <laughs> I didn't know Gerky before the school. It was the first day he walked by and he had a drum, and I had my tap shoes on and he sort of glanced in my room and he goes, hey, you want to jam? And I said, sure. So he sat down, he started playing, I started tapping, and um, the kids got all excited and turned on by that. Sort of, it just sort of happened. It wasn't planned at the very, very beginning. I walked in there, you know, with my tap shoes and my boom box at the time. As we went around the room, I realized that when I'd say, let's, well, let's do an icebreaker, let's all stand in a circle first and you can tell me your name if you'd like to and why you're here. And I'm thinking I'm gonna hear because I love to dance, I love to sing, I love to do this. And for the most part, the majority was, oh, I get kicked out of this school and this is my last chance or um, my mama made me come here. And um, so I knew I had uh, a challenge on my hands, uh, especially in dance, to get people to participate. It has always made me curious about the schools where the kids come from before. You know, what were those schools like? Like the walls that the kids had up? What was it about 
being in school before that made these walls develop? You know, and I, I don't know the answer to that. One of the things that I did at the very beginning just to get like discipline going, um, I'm also a Suzuki trained teacher, but one of the things that, they, that always happens in a Suzuki lesson is you bow in and bow out, just like in a martial arts class. So I made them do that and they hated it. Absolutely hated it. But I got to the point where I would not let them leave and go to another class unless they bowed out. And I finally got him to do it. And it was like, that, that, was, that was the moment they realized I wasn't playing. You know, if you wanna do this, this is what you're gonna have to do. I used to just sort of take my class outside if it was summer or nice weather, and we'd go and we'd bring our tap shoes outside and we'd just tap around downtown. We would just walk out of the building and um, I'd call down to the office and say, I'm taking my class outside. They'd say, okay, and we'd go. The very first day of school, Marty Porter comes to me and says, I got these two ballet dancers in the car and they don't know whether they want to get out of the car and go to the school or not. Can you do something with them? And I said, oh yeah, bring them in here, stick them in my class. At this point, even though the school year had started, TSA continued to navigate uncharted territory. Students and teachers were struggling to find their footing. However, the diverse faculty consisting of experienced teachers and working artists alike started to become recognizable as an emerging asset to the culture and trajectory of the school. I am Stephen Johnston. I am a visual art teacher at the Toledo School for the Arts, where I have been since the doors opened. Uh, the arts teachers, and many of them, uh, were not educators because in the state of Ohio, you know, if someone has a college degree and a sufficient amount of expertise in a given area, you know, they can be hired to teach. We had, therefore, individuals who indeed were uh, trained in how to manage a classroom and others who were not so keyed into doing that. So the you know, environment in anyone's given classroom could vary quite a bit. But then you also had the aspect that, you know, we had students coming from a variety of backgrounds, economically, certainly in terms of their education. We became a place sought out by parents who really wanted to have their children be safe. There was no building above us. We were like the, the roof in the middle of the building. So ice would fall from like the other parts of the building and land on the ceiling. And the room was freezing. So there was a point where we had a propane heater, which is completely against every building code imaginable. So we would just put it on and then turn it off. I mean, that, that was absolutely insane. You know, uh, we were probably a little rougher around the edges, you know, with some of our student body than what we are now. Uh, that first year of the school, uh, especially after I took over uh, the social studies class, the American history class, by the end of the year, I pretty much felt I was the king of detentions. Memories fade with time, and you know, perhaps you know, some of the things I dealt with then, you know, if I was confronted with them today, I'd have a whole different take on it. Now, I personally never felt it was you know, chaos. Not ever to a point where I felt that like, hey, this is a zoo, and what the heck am I doing here? And, you know, do I want to be here for another, you know, five minutes, let alone another 20 years? He, you know, deep inside, you see the good in every student, and you just pray and you hope that you can pull that out of them. That type of success makes you go back and do it every day. TSA was created to serve the community, so it came as no surprise when the community helped to return the favor. For those working hard at TSA in the early days, to know that you had the support of your target audience was a serious boost of morale. Some of those relationships continue to this day. Yeah, they were from Gerke from the Drum Depot. Nothing like getting a fleet of violins from the Drum Depot. Well, and, you know, there, there's a lot of funny stories about those because, you know, back in the day, we trusted our students a lot less than we trust them now. Um, so I, I did something I never thought I would do is, you know, use an um, engraver to write, you know, TSA on the back. We just want to make sure if they walked away, we could get it back from the pawn shop. I was good friends from the symphony with Joe Morin, and he, he 
he said that they weren't allowed to give away instruments they were no longer using for some weird tax rule or something, but, but they were allowed to throw them in the dumpster, which seemed ridiculous. So he would call me and say, hey, there's gonna be a couple cellos in the dumpster this afternoon. And so that's our first cellos were dumpster cellos and I still have them. We'd come back every day and it got a little bit better every day. And, and Marty was really good at giving you a pep talk and say, no, it's gonna be all right, it's gonna be all right. But I remember him showing me my, my room um, after the walls got put up several weeks later and it was empty. And I'm like, okay, what about, you know, tables and chairs? He's like, ah, you're, gonna just, you're just gonna have to be creative, man. And he walked away. And I'm like, what? Like no tables and chairs? And the kids helped me paint the walls. We stayed after school. And um, we, we built the thing from the ground up from literally nothing. I mean, we had classes at the Valentine. We had classes across the street at what used to be a bank basement. Um, because we didn't have all the spaces that we needed. And when we wanted to meet as a full group, we had very limited opportunity. We just really used the, the neighborhood as our schoolroom. You know, it was, it was funny because it, a lot of it was out of necessity, but what it really did was build the community partnerships around which we had hoped to build the school. I got the mission statement from every arts organization in town, and all of them said without reservation, and partners in education. So I put on my suit and tie and I went to every one of them and I said, okay, you're saying you're partners in education, what do you have for us? And the Toledo Symphony was one of the very first ones to come in. They started helping us provide private lessons. The museum opened their doors to us in ways that other schools had never imagined. The zoo allowed us to teach. We taught a science, a biology class, a theater class, because we didn't have a science lab. I had no test tubes, no nothing but the zoo had some space that wasn't being used. So it was those kind of community things that made such a difference. The first dances that they would have. Oh. Marty and Ann, Marty would have to go. He would drag Ann along. We would go with them. We would act as chaperones. chaperones. Over at the shelter house, over at uh, Joey Brown Park or at Danny Thomas Park. It was just part of the fabric of the school. It, everybody went together. The first proms that we did, the stuff up at the top of the Secor building, the landlords that owned the building wanted to see us succeed. So they would say, well, go ahead, use the fourth floor. Nobody's in that space right now or use the 12th floor. And we would do all kinds of stuff like that. It was always some type of a put it together, you know, with bailing wire and duct tape and you'd have a great time. He would come in and if things needed to be, uh, like the toilets, I think that would happen in the toilets or the sinks or something in the bathroom. So he came in with his little uh, work bucket, bucket never, and when he was done, he came into my classroom and he said, uh, he came and he said, hi, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, when he said goodbye, he kissed me goodbye. And she was like, oh, Miss Breeze kissed the janitor. And I was like, what? And he says, that's you kissed the janitor. And I said, that's not the janitor, that's my husband. Because they always saw him repairing things and working on things. No one had money to buy tap shoes. So I begged, borrowed, and stole and went to the different stores and said, hey, you know, got donations. And, and then when we went to the dance competitions, they were like, the finals were in uh, Florida, in Disney World. And, and they were like, well, we don't have any money. We can't send the kids there. I rented a van and I drove, and uh, one of the other advisors and I drove our students down and we competed and we won first place out of everyone in the country. They would look at me and they say, Miss Breeze, I never thought I'd even get to Disney World my whole life. It's the first time they had been out of Toledo. Toledo. We knew that we could succeed. I do have to laugh because the young, scrappy, and hungry, I mean, that's TSA at the beginning, definitely. It, it became your social fabric. It truly was. Like you said, the kids don't understand. It was, it was blood, sweat, and tears and years to get any kind of an art school up. What everyone did, you know, I learned how to spackle because I, I worked it. You know, you had that common thread that tied you together and sewed you together. And, you know, you live or die by each other. Lee Reamer, whose sidewalk star you might have seen along Adams Street, was an extremely critical factor in helping establish TSA. Though she passed in 2009, her legacy still lives on today. 
it was it's so heartwarming to hear stories from the very first classes kids saying that they hated math they never understood math until Lee Reamer taught them but she was just very instrumental in setting the tone for what TSA should be and can be and I believe is she took me under her wing and uh I wasn't certified yet, so I had started going to school at UT to get my certification. I could go take a few courses and get certified, so I was taking those courses, and one of them was math for educators, and I was bombing. I was, I, I was like, I'm not gonna pass this, I'm not gonna pass this, I'm not gonna be able to do this next year. And Lee said, let's meet every, every, every Wednesday. So we would meet, she would tutor me, and she really understood what I knew she would say, did you ever lay tile? Did you ever help your dad like lay tile when you were a kid? Like, yeah, sure, you know, the peel and stick thing. She goes, that's what geometry is, but these tiles are different sizes. This is, this is what you're dealing with here. And I remember that particular lesson being one of my first lessons with her. She was, she was just a genius, man. She was just genius. Old school hippie, she played guitar, she wrote music, she made jewelry. She was a mathematician, was a real bag. But she was, she was integrating the arts in everything that she did all throughout her, her career. And she really knew how to make those connections. She was amazing. So one of the things she did right as we were finally leaving that building is she um, took chunks of the, the nasty gross floors, like stone floor, and she put like wire around the pieces and put them on like yarn. So we all have these necklaces that have chunks of the floor on them. So that was kind of cool. Two years in, three years in, um, Jill became pregnant, and you know I was 40, 41 years old, and I'm like, I, ca I can't have a kid. I'm an idiot. I can't. I can barely take care of myself. I can't. I can't, I can't have a kid. So I was up all night, freaking out, and I drove into school, and uh, I was pacing around and acting crazy, and all the kids were like, "What's wrong with you, man? What's wrong with you?" And I'm like, "I'm cool. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it." And finally, they kept pecking at me, and I just blurted out, "Okay, Jill's pregnant." And one of them goes, well, you can't have a kid. You're an idiot. And I'm like, I know, I know. And I literally walked out in the hallway because I was tripping out, like crying, like, like just losing my mind. And I walked down to Lee and I knocked on her door and she came out in the hallway and she's like, what's the matter? I go, Jill's pregnant. And she goes, oh, honey, it's going to be so fantastic. And she wrapped her arms around me and like she helped me through it. And, you know, they did our baby shower. Like, so like, you know, when people say, you can't take this very personally. I'm like, what, are you kidding me? It, 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 it's For the last 21 years, it's been everything that I do. My children grew up in the building, you know? One of them graduated from there last year. So it, it, it's extremely personal. And I think education is, 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 is personal. And uh, I think that has always been the magic of TSA. We take the students' losses as our own losses. And, and their wins as our wins. And I think they see the same way with us, you know? And they, they, want, they want us to be better people. I'm, I'm a better person because of my TSA experience. Absolutely, absolutely. I have no idea where I'd be right now if it wasn't for TSA. The school is now alive and in full swing, and it's exciting. TSA is becoming a known presence in Toledo, which fuels the fire for bigger and better things. Um, my name is Rob Koenig. Um, I'm a lawyer at Shoemaker, Lupin, Kendrick Partner. I have been associated with TSA since 1999. I was the chairman of the board for nine years, and I'm currently a board member. I also help on a regular basis with musicals and some, some plays ha having to do with sound design. So that's me. And I'll tell you, many of the teachers that had a lot of experience when we hired them they took pay cuts to come and work at Toledo School for the Arts because they were so committed to the concept of arts integration and, and really made a difference in the quality of education throughout that early stage of, of TSA. I, I guess I just can't say enough about the dedication of the faculty. It takes a very special person to teach at TSA because it's not a traditional public school teaching job. It's, it's more of a mission. It's a calling. 
I've, I've always believed very firmly that TSA must succeed academically and do well by our students. As, as Marty Porter might, might say, um, it, you're not just tap dancing your way through high school. Charter schools at the outset were required to have sponsors, and our initial sponsor was Toledo Public Schools. And the superintendent that granted us the right to have a, a school and agreed to be our sponsor shook hands on the deal and immediately retired. The next superintendent wanted no part of it. TPS essentially set up a group of people to come in and assess what the school was doing, how they were doing it, and make a recommendation as to renewing the contract or not renewing the contract. And this was a very big thing for the school because if we didn't have a sponsor, we didn't have a school. TPS put together a team of, of four or five teachers and they came in and they were all very pleasant. They were, you know, they were not there to make friends. They were just there to see what was going on and make a report back. I was at the TPS meeting when they ultimately reported um, back to TPS and Marty and I were going in thinking that we were going to get a beating. The teachers and the one that actually gave the presentation, they got to the report part. And at one point, one of the reviewers began to cry and said that one of the students that she had always viewed as a troubled student was finding such success at our place and that she was so impressed with what she had seen that she could find no reason for them not to renew our renew our charter. Uh, that was, for me, that was a kind of a heart-stop, uh, powerful moment. Things got pretty normal pretty quickly, though. Uh, things like First Friday, you know, at, we also had Third Thursday. Those started to be like, you know, a regular thing right away, and I think I, I think I can attribute those to us really getting on a roll because not only did the students now have expectations, but the community did too. Slowly we began to expand and then at a certain point, they imposed the proficiency tests as, as they were called at that time. And our students did exceedingly well. Our staff had really gotten them ready. From that point on, people had a different view of what our school was. I remember sitting with Marty in his office one day in the second year of the school. And we were just daydreaming really about how, you know, one day we would like to be that arts organization that sat at the table with the museum and the symphony and the, you know, arts commission and was one of the big dogs in town. And it seemed unattainable really at that point. Then 10 years ago, practically that, the museum had put the school in their five-year master plan as one of their points of community involvement. Symphony has been providing teachers to the school from like year four or five. We are one of those players in town. We are one of those arts organizations that provides a significant improvement to the city. When, when the original superintendent for TPS signed off and retired, the second superintendent said, uh, a, a, an art school in downtown Toledo will be successful when pigs fly. So from that point forward, that became our unofficial uh, mascot, if you will. Kaleidoscope is TSA's signature showcase, one that our community regularly anticipates. Though Kaleidoscope wasn't always the behemoth it is today, it is a tradition that has lasted since its conception in 1999. I mean, you know, the first thing you learn in theatrical improvisation exercise is that you never say no. And it was that kind of way in the school right from the beginning and throughout. Somebody would have a crazy idea and, you know, there's always somebody who's going to say, oh, about that. Like me, I'm always a person that's always gonna say, oh, I don't know about that. At the same token, it's like, yeah, let's give it a try. You know, why not? When we, uh, we got to December of that first year and we wanted to do some kind of performance, but nobody had anything ready to go. I mean, you know, we'd only been working with these students for a couple of months and most of that was without any equipment and not in a room. <laughs> I remembered, you know, from college that we always did 
a performance in the music department that was called Kaleidoscope, and it was just one number from each group. And one number from each of the different classes were, we were offering was kind of enough. It was, you know, rel revelatory. It was like, there's, you know, a, a true interest in this. And it was an interest that was pretty easy to sustain. My orchestra students played Twinkle Twinkle Little Star Variations. Now they played it really well, but that's, you know, that's where we were. The Secor building, though a lovely place with all of its quirks and memories, was no longer a viable option for TSA's skyrocketing student population. It was time for TSA to uproot itself and start fresh. I remember when we got in the new building, we had ordered a ton of equipment, new desks and chairs and uh, music stands and everything else, and a semi-truck pulled up to the front of the school around 4.30. Everybody was gone except a couple of us. And we had to unload a full semi-truck load full of desks and carry them to the various rooms. I mean, we were there till all hours getting it done. And it was right before school was about ready to start. And so those kind of things have happened over and over again. Um, lockers that we bought from other schools and went and had to rip them out ourselves to bring them back to the school. All those kinds of things were a buy-in from, from folks that uh, was way above and beyond for sure. We basically gutted the entire first floor. And we did, by and large, we did that ourselves, the board and volunteers. And, but there were a lot of parents that came and, and helped and it took us two or three weekends. But I will never forget that Mrs. Ann Porter and I volunteered to take down the bathroom that was essentially, if you know where the Porter Gallery is, there was a big bathroom right there. Well, to, to say that this area was disgusting gives it a lot of credit. And we spent all day putting stuff into bags that we didn't ever want to see again. I'll never forget that Anne just basically said, yeah, I'll do that, come on, bring it on. She wasn't afraid and she just jumped right in. And, and you know, Marty Porter used to always say that the leader of the group takes the worst job. That, that proves every time you are volunteering that you are completely committed to this project. My, my office was, a, was the construction office where the school store is on the second floor. I had a little cubicle in there and a group of guys, Terry from the, from the custodial crew, um, uh, Olaf of course, a bunch of us uh, with, with sledgehammers and tools started tearing stuff down. And I remember we had to tear out a whole portion of concrete floor that was painful, and, and, uh, but we got it done. Terry, Terry is a, a great friend and, and I miss those guys. At the point that we were gonna renovate the second floor, we weren't gonna hire a summer staff. Terry said, I wanna stay, I wanna be in this building and I'll stay and I'll do the work. And he carried concrete and everything else with us. And so uh, those guys, uh, uh, very honored to be a part of all that, that's for sure. TSA continued to grow following the transition to the Adams Street building. In order to regulate the increased demand for spots in our school, administration was forced to introduce the lottery system. There was a huge paradigm shift in 2009. That's when Crystal Bowersox uh, brought national focus to Toledo School for the Arts, or at least regional focus. Uh, I don't think she ever mentioned the name of the school, but of course the media grabbed it and uh, that's when we started the uh, lottery. Well, early early on, we didn't have to have a lottery because we were taking anything that had a pulse and then and then making the best of it. I remember that first, the first open house that we had, Olaf called me like at 8.30 and, and it was supposed to start at 10. It's like 10 below. He's like, get down here. We got to let these people in the building. I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? It doesn't even start till 10 and it goes from 10 till two. And he's like, there are people lined up around the block. And I'm like, shut up. He's like, no, I'm not lying. So of course, I get on the phone, call every TV station. You know, people are lined up an hour and a half early and there were people that have been there all night trying to get in line to get, in, get into TSA. There was no lottery. And uh, there was this mass import of all these suburban kids that never really had any interest in going to the place until we got all that press. Well, as the school really progressed, it got to be um, it got to be so competitive to get in, we couldn't build space fast enough. Uh, Marty Porter and I used to always chair the 
the parents meeting um, when we had our open houses and we got a new guidance counselor one time and so she joined this meeting and the first time she she talked she said well you know when you think about an institution like Toledo School for the Arts and Marty and I went what what institution so I mean you know we we thought of it as you know a, a something held together by gaffer's tape and some twine and she saw it from the outside as being an institution and that was just mind-boggling to me it actually turned into an institution we weren't sure if it was going to survive <laughs> the fact that it's around and, and doing well is real uh, real exciting for me we noticed after a while especially after we moved into the new building that those people that came and joined us after that they thought What's so hard about this? They hadn't been through the original formation of the, of the school and all the challenges that we had in the facility with roofs leaking and no heat in portions of it and, uh, and all of that. So uh, it does, it does uh, uh, mean a lot to me that the school continues to be so successful. We had an ambassador meeting. Natalie Gray, a graduate of TSA, who worked in our office for a couple of years, who now works for the Arts Commission. She was our guest visitor. She was talking about her experience at TSA, and at one point she stopped and she said, so what about you guys? What's your experience like? She goes, I guess what I would like to know as an alum is how's my school? And uh, Lily Buck started talking about her experience, and she got choked up and needed some time. And I was like, okay, we're all right. We're all right. It's still... It's still that way for everybody. Because, you know, I'm down in the development office, especially now. I, I barely see anybody. And I wonder if it's sustaining, you know, if Lee Reamer's still in the building. And of course she died in 2009, but I always say her spirit's in the building. Is she still there? And when I hear Lily Buck talk and I hear these other students like you talk and, 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 and they get choked up like, this has been the most precious thing in my life. It's pretty powerful. That was not my high school experience. Usually we've been saying uh, between 20 and 30 different school districts, but that still doesn't tell the whole story of where of all of our students come from. It's like 65. It's mind blowing. More tangible, I think, than, than the money for me is, is seeing the success of our students and seeing kids being able to enjoy going to school. We, we have so many stories of parents saying, you know, my, my kid never did well in school until they went to TSA, they were failing their classes and now they're getting A's and B's. And again, it's not because TSA is so easy, it's because they're actually learning the material, they're getting it. You know, we had a, a concept from early on that we wanted the kids to be out doing the work in their profession as fast as we could. You know, my theory about that is that students have an instinctive understanding about what is real work and what is school work. So giving them an opportunity to be performing in public for like a real gig and not like a school concert has a significant difference in how seriously they'll take it. So that was an initially a, a really important philosophy that we built and maintained. We learned really early to stay out of the teacher's way give them an idea, turn them loose, and then don't mess with it, and let's see what happens. And uh, oftentimes there's not, there's not many places for people to explore and to try. We didn't care if we failed. I mean, we cared, but it, it was okay. What we wanted you to do was try something different. And that, that, that has been the core of the school. And the people who remain over a long period of time there get that to their soul, I think. We all worked very hard and one day we realized that we built something bigger than ourselves. And that, that's the cool thing. The life of the school is very reflective of how the arts work in the real world. I mean, you really are only as good as your last performance. Your laurels don't count for very much in the real world of the arts. Every year we're about proving again that we still have got it, that we're still bringing creative ideas and are still performing at an unexpected level. I, I never finish a year feeling like we've left everything said and done. And, and it always feels like 
there's just infinite possibilities waiting. It is the absolute greatest blessing that I've had on my life, and I can't, I can't imagine anything else that I would rather be doing. And you know, I'll never be rich. I, 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 I've never been rich fiscally, but I'm, I'm, I'm rich in relationships. I'm rich in people that care about me at a level that I never thought people outside my family could, that I could have that with. So when you think of the task of taking kids from all of those different levels of preparation uh, from their prior educational experiences, making them into, I'm, I'm starting to tear up here, making them into such a creative and closely knit class or force with the whole school, um, it's just, it, it takes your breath away. Um, our annual end of the year showcase of all the visual and performing work that we do during the year that could not take place on the live stage as it has ever since we started. Um, at the end, the students all start chanting, TSA, TSA. And they're just, it's, it's just one big emotional gathering of, of all of their work, all of their friendships, and they're so excited. And the curtain closes and you can still hear them chanting TSA. I mean, that's, how many schools can you see something like that? And it's just, as I say, it's, it, it brings me to tears every year. TSA Beat is a production of Toledo School for the Arts and is available on TSA streaming service ArtsWatch. You can find other TSA productions and performances on ArtsWatch by visiting ts4arts.org. That is TS, the number four, arts.org. Or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or your favorite social media outlets. Special thanks to all of our guests, TSA faculty and administration present and past, Marty Porter, David Sagers, Rob Koenig, Elizabeth Emmert, Devin Mike Calabrese, Diana Anderson, Stephen Johnston, and Dave Gerke. Lucas and I would also like to extend our gratitude to the individuals and organizations who supported a much younger version of our school. Though we weren't able to interview you, know that your efforts and contributions are just as appreciated. My home away from home would not exist without your faith in an idea that became my reality. This episode was written and produced by Aubrey Seiler and Lucas Madrazo. Music and score for this episode provided by Lucas Madrazo, Dream Louder, Wildlife Moon, and Lauren Belthrop. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Lee Reamer. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. Have a great summer and good luck to all of our graduating seniors. 